You can be seated all over the house. Um, how do you do at waiting? How many of you are good at waiting? Like, is there, like, here's my, I don't know if this is inappropriate, but I think hell is going to be like the DMV, waiting in line. The, is there anything worse? Yeah. Like, you can say amen, but you can say amen to that. Like, or, or sitting in a doctor's office when you have an appointment, by the way, and waiting for two hours. So we have three kids under five, and that's happened multiple times. One time a few months ago, and I was there with my wife, and when it gets, you know, so long into that waiting process, inevitably she is going to go up and begin to talk about how they can run that office more efficiently and effectively and manage their time better. And she's the most efficient time manager I've ever met in my life, so they should listen, um, but how they can get their crap together. So that was fun a few months ago, um, watching her do that. But there's nothing worse than waiting. And the other thing is, like, I, I hate to say this, but I don't even like taking my kids to amusement parks because I don't like to wait in line. Unless I can some kind of, does somebody say, wow, like... Um, that's not the worst thing in the world. Um, <laughs> I, I could do worse things, but like at the, like I hate it. And like a few years ago, I went to Hollow Scream, but this is probably more than a few years ago, but like were you, maybe it was just that night, but we had to stand in a 45 minute line. And then you go into like 10 minutes of strobe lights and sheets, and then you're out on the other side and another 45 minute line. And seriously, there's nothing in the universe that is worth that. Like, there's nothing that somebody's going to do that's going to make it worth me standing in a 45-minute line. And so just to, you know, be confession right now, like, I just, I turn into an idiot. Like, I'm, I'm just a jerk. I'm very impatient. I'm struggling with that. And here's, here's where it really gets bad is when I don't have um, any expectation of when it's going to end. Like, I don't know what the, the indefinite or definite amount of time is going to be. And um, next slide, I don't know... Um, like how to control it. Like there's nothing that I can do to fix it. I just have to sit there and I just have to wait. And like, it drives me crazy. And here's my hunch too, is that in our culture, our on-demand culture, it's made it worse. Like Siri can answer a question for you anytime you want. You know, you can get the answer on Google. Like, do you ever sit down and watch a movie or a show I know you've done this, and like there's somebody in it, some actor, and you're like, what did, what did they play in? Like what other movie did they play in? And like back in the day, Google was, you just wait to remember, right? <laughs> like you didn't have any. The other day, um, I was trying to explain to my five-year-old girl what Blockbuster Video was. And she had no con, like the, the, a world where that doesn't even make, because you have Netflix and you can watch whatever you want, whenever you want to watch. And on demand has affected us socially. Like we have less kids now because back in the day, my parents had five kids because they didn't like what was on TV or they didn't want to get up and change it because they had to change the channel. They're just like, ah, nothing to do. And so they ended up having five kids, right? That is a true story. I guarantee you. Me and my sister are the product of the first three. So anyway, um, on-demand on culture. So here's the whole question I want to ask in the series is, oh yeah, this is the other point I had. The less we wait, the worse we get at waiting. So the, the question in this series is like, like what, do you, what do you do while you wait? And, and here's the thing, and I don't think this is a stretch, that um, at some level it translates into our relationship with God. And maybe you're here, you don't believe in God, and we're glad you're here and leaning into this. Um, and, and if you do, like at some level, it translates into our relationship with God. So how do you handle waiting on God? Like that's really the big question if you're in a waiting season right now. And, and here's specifically what I'm talking about. A waiting season is like, um, there's nothing you can do to fix it. 
right? Like, so there's some waiting seasons where like, okay, just get your stuff together or you make that decision. But, but you're in a season where you can't do that. There's nothing that's going to fix it. There's nothing you can walk out of here and do. Or a waiting season that's characterized by um, an indefinite amount of time. Like you don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know if it's ever going to end. Or here's the other thing, a waiting seasons where you don't have really any good options, you know what I'm talking about? Like you're in the, that season where, okay, there's nothing I can do to make this better. And so the only options I have are bad options that are going to lead me off the rails. Options to self-medicate, to start drinking too much because I just want to do all the pain because I can't do anything with it. Um, options to just walk away. So you just quit or you walk away or you run away from whatever it is. Um, or maybe the options are you start looking around and comparing your circumstances to somebody else's. I mean, that's that's hard not to do, especially in Instagram world, or, or you have the options of you just drive yourself into anxiety. You can't do anything about it, but you feel responsible by worrying about it, or, or maybe driving yourself into getting angry, getting angry at people who have nothing to do with your waiting season, but you just you got to get angry at somebody, or in some cases, getting angry at God. So like, what do you, what do, you do in those seasons? It's a marriage, and you feel like you've done everything you can, and it's not changing, and you're just waiting, like there's no more counseling. Or you're, maybe it's a thing with your adult kid and you used to be able to fix it and now you can't fix it and you're standing back watching your adult kid and there's really nothing you can do. You can't change it for them. Or maybe it's a diagnosis and you're waiting for something to change. You're waiting for the, the thing, the treatment to work or, or you're waiting over a reputation thing. You're waiting over a dream that you feel like God's placed in your heart but it's starting to die. For some of you, it's a hurt. And so you are in a place where you, you start to look to the future and wonder, is there ever a point where I'm not going to feel this way again? Like, am I ever going to get past this? And then um, others of us, maybe we're just in a season where you look at your life and you look at your circumstances and you look at what you're waiting on, and you are far from where you thought you'd be, wherever it is, educationally, family-wise, and like you're just far from where um, you thought you'd be. And, and the thing is, like for some of you, that's whether you're here or you're listening somewhere, that's exactly where you are, right? That's exactly. And then here's the other thing, the, the annoying people, that, and they don't mean to be annoying, um, but when you're in that season of waiting and then somebody else has some story about they're waiting on the same thing and God answered their prayer or God came through or they have some kind of frivolous like, oh, I found, you got a new car, prayed and got a new car, prayed and found my car keys. And you're just like, shut up, shut up, Right? Like, because you're, you're in a place where you're like, what I'm going through is way bigger than your car keys. And, and there's just like this angst that rises up in you where like you don't want to hear about it. It's just, it just kind of gets annoying. And so, again, the question really comes down to this. What do you do while you're waiting? That's what we're going to answer in this series. And today I just want to set it up. And what I mean by what do you do while you're waiting when there's really no good options and, and there's nothing that you can do where you just walk out of here today and fix it. There, you can't fix it. You're just... You're just waiting, and you don't know how long you're going to wait or if the wait is, is ever going to end. So, so what do you do while you're waiting? Now, here's the thing for a lot of us. Here's what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to draw really bad conclusions. And for some of you, maybe you don't even believe in God. Maybe it's one of the reasons you don't believe in God or you walked away. Because in those seasons when we've waited long enough, we start to draw conclusions like this, that, that maybe God is uncertain, because I feel really uncertain. I don't know what's happening in this. And so maybe at some level, God's the same way or, or that God is inactive. 
And here's the thing about this that's really important is for a lot of us, our definition of God's activity or how God works, we, we got that from somebody. It was from a grandma, it was from a Sunday school teacher, it was by osmosis being around somebody. But all of us have this idea of what we think God's activity looks like. And in many cases, our understanding of God's activity and reality are two different things. Like We just assume if God's active, there's going to be less chaos, not more. And we just assume if God's active, um, there's going to be less hardship, not more. And especially if you're like, I'm trying to love and follow God. Or, or we believe that, that if, if God is active, there's going to be less uncertainty and not more. And so when we experience the opposite of that, we start to draw conclusions that, that maybe, maybe God is inactive in my circumstances. And the other big one is that we start to draw conclusions that God's angry. Because we just have this idea, God punishes bad people, he blesses the good people, it's a throwback from Greek-Roman culture, and so we always think there's a one-to-one correlation. We look at our circumstances, and we look at our circumstances, we can know whether God's blessing or whether God's not blessing. And so we come to the conclusion that I'm bad, or I did something bad, and God's mad, and that's why I'm where I'm at. Or then we draw conclusions, last one, that, that maybe God has just forgotten, and, and because if there's a God of the universe, come on, if there's a God of the universe, then God could, which means he didn't, which means he doesn't care. And that maybe at some level, like, God has just forgotten about me. And here's the thing, and this is, I'll probably say this again throughout this series. Here's the dangerous part or the dangerous temptation in the waiting season, whatever your waiting season looks like, is that in the waiting season, that can be the season that causes you to walk away from God. That can be the season where you just kind of give up faith. That can be the season where you start to be driven and overridden by anger. Or in some cases, and it's not so much intellectual, it's what you feel, is you start to just determine there is no God. But the waiting season can be unbelievably dangerous. There's a series called In the Meantime where it makes this point um, that I think is so powerful. And, And it's just this, that in our waiting season... At some level, when we're willing to walk away because things aren't meeting our expectations, at some level, there's some hypocrisy in that. So let me just say this gracefully. At some level, when we're like, God, I want to feel your presence, and God, where are you? And I want to sense your activity, and I want to know that you're involved in my circumstances. At some level, there's a little hypocrisy in that for all of us, and I'm guilty. Because here's what I bet, and I don't even know you. I I bet that there have been certain seasons of your life where you did not want to feel God's presence where you did not want to sense God's activity in your life, where, where you did not want to know that God was like right there with you. I don't know what your story is. Is spring break 95? Spring break 2009? Spring break 72, just to get every demographic in here. I don't know when your spring break was. They do spring break back then. Um, but your spring break and like there's beads flying around and keggers and you are not crying out to God in that moment. God, I just want, where's your presence? I want to feel your presence. No, you didn't want any of God's presence, right? Or, or you're, you're in a place where you're in the back of a Camaro or an El Camino or something, and in that moment you're going, God, I just, I don't know if you're active in my life. No, no, no. The last thing you wanted was to sense God's activity. Like you were trying to pretend there was no God in that moment. Or you driving home from your greatest regret, whatever that was, you did not have Hillsong worship or Elevation worship blaring on your stereo. In that moment, that's one of the moments in your life where you were hoping that God had forgotten you, that maybe he was busy, maybe he was distracted by something else, but that he was not present in your life. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes, you do. You, like, we've all been there. And in that moment, we, we didn't want God's presence. We didn't want God's activity. We, we didn't want to know 
um, that God was with it. And so it reveals a little bit of hypocrisy. And here's the thing that, that is kind of in all of us, including me, so I relate with this, is that at some level we want a God who we're able to choose when he's active and control what his activity looks like. And in fact, what we really want is on-demand God. We want God to kind of move and do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. And if he doesn't, that's the seasons where we're tempted to walk away. That's the season when we're tempted to maybe give up, to stop praying, to just, to just walk out whatever it is. And then the thing that happens is we draw more bad conclusions. That if you're in a season of waiting, you get to that point and you, you start to think things like this, that, um, that somehow you'll never experience peace again. And so you look at what's going on around you and you just think, like, there's never going to be a point in my life where I could, I could really see myself being at a place of peace with what's going on. Or you start to draw conclusions or make assumptions that, that this cannot produce anything good. Like there's no way that there's anything of benefit that's going to come out of this season. Or you start to think that at some point it is pointless to keep trying. Like I'm just going to give up. Like I've done everything I can in the marriage. I'm going to give up on the dream even though I feel like God has placed this in my heart. But nothing's happening. Everything's dying. Or I don't know if you've ever felt this. You're in a season where you're trying to do what's right in the waiting. You're trying to hold on to your integrity. You're, you're trying to follow and obey God. And you get to a certain point where God seems so inactive for so long and so silent for so long that you're like, why am I even doing this? Why, like, if I have to choose, I might as well have some fun in this season. Why am I trying to obey and do what's right? And it seems like God is nowhere to be found. Like, he doesn't even see it. And so you just you just kind of come to the conclusion that it's all, it's all pointless. And here's the thing before I dive in um, to the scripture we want to look at today is all of us feel this at different levels. For some of you, it's, it's huge. Like it's dominating your life. Like you are in a waiting season right now, and that's, that's the only thing you can see. And for others of us, I think all of us at some level were, were experiencing this. I mean, the series was born out of my own heart in about February where I just kind of go with whatever I'm feeling. And I feel like that's usually God directing me. And so I was just in a season where I'm waiting and, and I feel the tension around that. And so I'm like, okay, we'll go with that. But all of us feel it at, at some level. But for some of you where it's just dominating you and, and you feel like right now that you... You're not really sure if you can hold on much longer. And what I know, if you're in that season long enough, you, you start to feel really, really lonely. And you're, you're in a place right now where you, you really do not know where to go from here. As we start this series, I just want to speak this over you. And you may not believe it right now, but here's what is true, is that, that in the midst of your waiting and in the midst of God's acti inactivity and in the midst of your praying and pleading but no answers... Your heavenly father loves you, and your heavenly father is with you, even though you are not experiencing it because your experience does not match up to your expectations. And in those seasons and circumstances and moments where you did not want God's activity and you were hoping God had forgotten and you did not want to feel God's presence, God was present. And in this circumstance where you are pleading and you are praying and you are waiting and you're looking at everybody else going, God, you're coming through for them. Why aren't you doing anything for me? God, I want to know you're present. I just want you to know this. God is present. And I don't say that because of my own personal 
circumstances or, or because of my story. It's, it's not just my story. It's because all throughout the scripture, and I was going to spend more time on this morning, but I don't have time. All throughout the scripture, not just New Testament, but all the way back to the Old Testament, this is the story of following God. And it is an uncomfortable story. But all throughout the Old and New Testament, you see this dynamic and you see this tension. And there's one incident in the New Testament that I think illustrates this and brings alive this tension, maybe more than any other narrative and any other story. And what's really interesting in this narrative is that God knows what's happening, but it doesn't seem like he knows what's happening. And the other thing that makes this powerful is that in this story, the dynamic between Jesus and the person that he's in relationship with is is really powerful because there's nobody closer, like there's nobody closer to Jesus than the person I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. I mean, they love each other, they're tight, they're relatives. I mean, they're, they're as connected as anybody on planet Earth. Jesus never had a closer relationship. And in this narrative and in this story, at some level, it it kind of, it doesn't solve anything for us, but for a lot of us, it kind of speaks to right where we are to go, we're not alone. And we're not the first person to feel this. And in fact, in this circumstance, Jesus actually creates the tension for this person. And in this, you get a window, you get a view into exactly what all of us have felt. And the person that I'm talking about in the New Testament is John the Baptist, who is not the first Baptist, but in the Greek, John the washer, John the baptizer, but John's cousins with Jesus. They're as close as anyone. They, in some level, grew up together. They did play dates together. Their moms were tight. I mean, these got nobody, there's no closer relationship. They love each other. I mean, John actually starts Jesus' ministry off by baptizing Jesus on the edge of the Jordan River. And that was the moment. I mean, Jesus chose him to be the guy that kind of brings his ministry into fruition. And in fact, John, his whole ministry was preparing the way for Jesus. You maybe know this. And his whole kind of message, my paraphrase, was like, listen, I'm just the opening act. I'm the garage band. I am setting the stage for the main show, and the main show is Jesus. And you guys need to get ready because the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is here, and he is about to change everything, the Lamb of God, the resurrection, and the life. And John's like, he's the one. This is the guy. Their whole lives were intertwined. And again, they they have connection like nobody else in the New Testament. Jesus takes it this far, just to set the stage. Jesus says this about John the Baptist, and Matthew records it. He says this. He says, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater. Anyone? Like Jesus, your own parents, Mary and Joseph. There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I have more respect for this guy than I have for anybody else who's walking the planet. And we're cousins and we love each other and our whole lives and ministries have been connected. And so one day, Matthew then records this though, with that as the backdrop, that one day Jesus' preaching circuit, preaching tour, has found its way close to where John's at, where John is staying, and John hears about it. And so John sends his disciples out, because John has some of his own disciples, and he says, hey guys, I need you to go, because I've heard that Jesus is nearby, Jesus is preaching, I need you guys to go ask Jesus this question. And so I don't know if John like writes it down, I don't know what he does, but he sends the question with his guys to go ask Jesus. And this is the question that John has his disciples ask Jesus. Matthew again records it, he says this, are you the one, are you the one who's to come? 
uh, John, um, you spent your whole life believing that Jesus is the one. You spent your whole life preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. You spent your whole ministry pointing people to him. No, no, I know. Could you just ask him this? Is he, are you, is he the one or should we expect someone else? John, seriously? You're John the Baptist. Like, what, where is this crisis of faith coming from? Like, your whole life has been about Jesus. And it's kind of a, I mean, the nerve to even ask the question, hey, Jesus, are you really, are, are you the Messiah or is there going to be somebody else? And here's the reason that John doesn't ask the question personally. Because John's in prison. And John's been in prison for a while. In fact, at this point, John has been sitting in a prison for about a year. And he finds out that Jesus, again, Jesus' little preaching tour has come right near where his prison cell is at. So he figures, this is a great time. Go ask Jesus if he's the one. Implication. Because if he was the one, like I thought he was, I'm not sure that it would be going down like this. I've been sitting in a prison for a year, so if you could make sure that Jesus knows that, that would be beautiful, but just if, 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 please inform him. Now, here's the thing. Here's why, John, real quick, to give you a little more of the backstory. You guys still with me? All right. Um, here's a little bit of the backstory why John is in prison real quick is John's crazy. John is fearless. John is a little bit eccentric. If you know the story of John, he, dude, wears animal skins, eats bugs, lives out in a field, eats honey for lunch, and he just goes up and down the Jordan River calling people out. Like, he doesn't care what anybody thinks. And so over and over again, hey, hey, I'm John the Baptist, repent. Jesus is here, the Messiah is here, and he would get up in kind of everybody's face. And he had one particular encounter or conflict with a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. So just go with me for a second. This may get confusing, but I'll try to make it simple. Herod Antipas was the ruler in Galilee at the time. And Herod Antipas, his dad was actually the Herod that killed all the babies in, in, around Jerusalem, Bethlehem. You know what I'm talking about from the Christmas story? That, that's his dad. So Herod Antipas is ruler of Galilee and one day, um, John the Baptist confronts him because here's the backstory. Herod Antipas was brothers with a guy by the name of Herod Philip. And then Herod Philip, at some point along the way, married his niece, which doesn't even happen in the South. So this is where it gets a little Jerry Springer. He married his niece by the name of Herodias. I guess they ran out of names. So you have Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Herod Philip marries their niece Herodias. Well, then one day Herod Antipas goes to Rome, which is where they're at, and Herod Antipas is staying with his brother Philip and his niece slash sister-in-law, um, Herodias. And while he's there, he decides, Herod Antipas does, that he wants to take Herodias as his wife. That's where it goes way off the rails. And so Herod Antipas abducts Herodias and takes Herodias, his niece slash sister-in-law, as his now wife, and he divorces his Arabian princess wife and decides he's going to live happily ever after. And John confronts him on He's like, Herod, Antipas, actually both of you guys, you can't do that. Number one, you can't marry your niece. They don't even do that in Kentucky. Like that is way off the rails. If you're from Kentucky, I'm just kidding if you're listening from there. Um, <laughs> That's like, that's way out of bounds. And then Herod Antipas, you cannot take your niece slash sister-in-law and abduct her and then marry her as your wife. Like, this is out of control. 
And so Herod Antipas obviously gets really, really angry. Herodias ultimately gets really, really angry. And um, they don't like being called out by John, but they can't really do anything about it because John is considered a prophet. And so if they do anything, they're afraid of the reaction from the people in the, the city. So Matthew says this. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison. And actually the prison was in a place called, I'll come back to you in a minute, Machaerus. And that, it's it kind of, I think, the eastern side of where he's at. And so he's in this prison by himself. He's been there for a year. Because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, or used to be, she's been abducted. Verse 4, for John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. This is where it gets really interesting to me. Here's John the Baptist, the greatest man born of a woman, the greatest to ever walk planet Earth according to Jesus other than Jesus. And he's sitting in a prison, and he's been there for a year. And John the Baptist, there's something about this that's comforting for me, starts to have a crisis of faith. He's at a crossroads of his trust because he has been waiting in a prison and God's been delaying. And Jesus is nearby on the preaching circuit, and he's still waiting. And, and so the question is sent, hey, like, are, are you the guy? And here's the thing. Here's where I think it intersects with our story. This is right where some of you have been. This is right where you are right now. You're in whatever your version is of waiting, your version of prison, and, and you want something to be different, and you're sending messages to Jesus, and you're not getting any response. And there John is waiting like we are, wondering if God has forgotten, and doubt, because this is what tends to happen in the waiting season, doubt starts to creep in for John the Baptist. And so he sends the question through his disciples, the one that we started with, and says, okay, for all of the reasons that we just mentioned, are you the one that's to come? Or should we expect someone else? Because I think if you're really the one, and I thought you did up until this moment, I don't think I'd be here. I don't think I'd still be waiting in prison. Come on, I'm your cousin. We love each other. I've helped your ministry in a huge way. You, you've said lots of great things about me. Why am I still here? And so Jesus is out teaching and John's disciples come to Jesus and Jesus finishes his talk on his little tour. And as soon as he's done, the disciples are like, hey, hey can we talk to you for a second? You know us. We're John's guys. Um, John has a question for you. I don't know if you know where John is at, but um, John has a question for you. And he's just wondering, we say this with all due respect, are you the one? Or should we, should, is there somebody else who's coming? And Jesus is like, that's a great question. Let me, I'll write it down for you if you guys want. Let, I want you to take this back to John. Go tell John this. And make sure you, you get all of this in. But, but go tell John what you see and what you hear. And, and may, again, make sure he gets all of this. He, here's my answer to the question. The blind receive sight. And the lame walk. And those who have leprosy are cured, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Go tell John that. Um, Jesus, you didn't answer the question. No, 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 just, just go tell John. Go tell John that everywhere I go, if there's a blind person, they receive sight. 
Go tell John that I'm the first person in history where I approach a leper and rather than them making me ill when I touch them, they receive healing. Go tell John that I've raised the dead. Go tell John that the deaf can now hear. Hey, I want you guys to go tell John all that I am doing for everybody else. Go tell him. In prison. Go tell him all the miracles you see. Go tell him all that you hear. Go tell them all that's happening in Galilee. It's unbelievable. But there's going to be no miracle for John. And this is where it gets real. Because again, that's, that's right where I've been and that's right where you have been, where you are, you are pleading and you are praying and you are asking and how long am I going to be single and I get the invitation to their wedding. And you are pleading and you are praying and you are asking God and it's not some kind of frivolous request. It's like, God, if you love me, I just kind of feel like you would answer this and, and you are hoping God's going to intervene and do something and they're in remission. And you are pleading, and you are asking, and you are praying, and their marriage is healed. And you start to wonder, and I think this is natural, God, have you forgotten me? And do you even hear me? And are you serious? It kind of seems cruel because right now I'm looking around and it's happening for everybody else. And here I am and I'm waiting and I don't even feel like you hear me. I feel like every prayer is bouncing off of the ceiling. Could you just let me know you're here? Could you just let me know that you're active? And could you stop rubbing my nose in it with everybody else around me? And then it gets worse. Because Matthew says this in Matthew 4.12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, pause for one second. This is why you would not make up what's in the New Testament. This is why if you're trying to get a movement going forward and you want people to believe Jesus and you want people to follow Jesus, you would not write what Jesus does. Because what would you expect from Jesus at this moment? Jesus loves John the Baptist. Jesus is cousin with John the Baptist. Their whole ministries and lives have been intertwined. John set the stage for Jesus, letting everybody know, guys, he's the one. He's the promised Messiah, Jesus. Hey, there's nobody I love more than John. He's the greatest man born of woman. I have so much respect for him. What, then what would Jesus do in this moment when he finds out that John is in prison? He returned to Galilee. Like, you could go visit him at least. <laughs> You're right in the same city. He returned to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, conveniently enough, in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. I need to show you on a map because this is where you really get it. And this, what? 
They're, they're down here. This is where John's at. He's in Macaris. It's all the way down. It's kind of red, orange, just looking on the screen right there. That, that's where John's at. Just, this seems like a much bigger area than it is. But Jesus is teaching around this area, around the area of Galilee. And he hears this question from John's disciple. Has, Go back. Tell John all the stuff you see. I get it. He's in prison. Thanks for the information. Thanks for filling me in. I will see you guys later. And Jesus leaves this area, and he's in Nazareth. And he ends up not moving down to maybe just do a swing by and bring some food and visit John in prison. He goes from Nazareth all the way up to this purple area of Capernaum, meaning Jesus goes in the complete opposite direction. Not only does he not visit him, he goes as far away as he can in the other direction, conveniently enough, by the lake. Today, 2,000 years later, that's a resort area. It's beautiful. So Jesus is basically going, hey, I hear you. I see you. Let, let John know everything that's going on, and I'm going to go back and just hang out by the lake in Capernaum 1,000 miles away. And John, you're going to be in prison. And that, that's not helpful, but that's exactly what you felt. You're praying, you're pleading, you're asking, you're begging God to intervene. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And God feels like he is moving in the opposite direction. He is doing anything but intervening into your circumstances, and he feels so And here's why I tell you this. Because if you're in Macaris right now, and I can't solve anything for you today, I'm not trying to solve anything for you today, I have no ability to solve anything for you today, you're in a waiting period potentially that is unsolvable right now. You're just waiting. But if you find yourself in Macaris and you're wondering where Jesus is, on the authority of the story of John the Baptist, you can be in Macaris waiting. And Jesus can still love you. And Jesus can still know you. And Jesus can still know your name. And his love and his grace in this moment is not any less than it was in those moments where you saw and experienced all of his activity and all of his presence. Because if he could do it for the greatest man born of woman, he can do it for you. And then here's what's so fascinating to me. This is what Jesus says right before this whole interaction, because Jesus knows, Jesus understands, Jesus gets the pushback, Jesus gets the uncomfortable nature of all of this. Here's what he says, Matthew eleven six. he records it before this whole interaction. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. This is Jesus' admission of guilt. I know. I know it's difficult. I know that I'm going to be misunderstood. I know that I'm going to feel a million miles away. I know it's going to feel like I'm in the opposite direction, hanging out at the lake. I know it's going to feel like I haven't answered any of your prayers. I know it's going to feel like I don't care. I know you're going to start to project on me that I'm uncertain. I know it's going to feel like I'm angry because you think there's a one-to-one correlation. I understand that you're going to feel all of those things. I also understand this, that in that waiting period, in this uncomfortable period where you cannot figure out God and you think if there is a God, 
This is not how God would interact. In that season, you are going to be tempted to walk away. You're going to be tempted to fall away. You're going to be tempted to give up belief. I get it. So blessed is the man who does not fall away, Jesus says, on account of me. Because come on, I knew John and I know you. And I love John and I love you. And I get the temptation that you are facing and that you are feeling in this season of waiting. But blessed is the man who does not gauge the waiting as abandoning and places their faith and their trust in me when they don't see me. So as we close, this is, here's what I just want to say to you. The issue for you in this season of waiting is not faith. You're going to have faith in something. And the issue is, what is the object of that faith? You're either going to maintain faith in your ability to understand, and I think you're always going to be frustrated, or you're going to maintain faith that God is working in your waiting even when there is no evidence of it. And can I just end with these really powerful words from Solomon that help me in these seasons? And I don't know if they're going to help you. And again, there's nothing you can do except maybe this. This is maybe the one way moving forward. And again, I'm not trying to solve anything today. I'm just trying to set up the tension of what we all feel and speak into it that on the authority of the scriptures that God is with you and that God is present. And Solomon says this in your season of waiting, trust in the Lord with all your heart, meaning your heart is the place of your feelings. And in the season of waiting, you are going to feel all kind of stuff. God, you feel like you're inactive. God, you feel like you're uncertain. And Solomon's like, hey, don't trust that. Because what you feel and what God's actually doing are two different things. And do not lean into your own understanding, meaning do not place any of your weight into trying to understand what God is doing or what God is not doing. Because how many times have you thought you knew what God was doing and what God was actually doing was two different things? Like, don't put any weight into that. And instead, here's the other option, and this may be your only option right now. In all your ways in the waiting season, that means all that's happening and all that's not happening and all of the temptation that you face today, you're going to walk out, you're going to quit, you're going to self-medicate. In all of your ways, this is maybe your only way forward. Would you acknowledge me? Would you acknowledge me? Would you acknowledge me in the season and in the moment that is most difficult for you to acknowledge me? It's easy to acknowledge me on the other side of the raise or in the middle of the boardroom and the market shares going up or in the middle of a marriage that is tracking beautifully. This is the most difficult time to acknowledge me. So maybe the only way forward for you is, would you right now, when you are tr struggling to believe it the most, would you just acknowledge, and I don't think this is some bold faith, this is with knees wobbling, to cry out, God, it feels like you are uncertain, but you are not. And it feels like you are angry, but you are not. And it feels like you have forgotten, but you will never forget me and you will never forsake me. And it feels like you are inactive, but you're not. And I am right now not going to acknowledge and trust in what I feel. I'm going to acknowledge and trust what is true, that you are here, that you are present. I'm not going anywhere and I'm struggling, so you're going to have to help me. But I'm just acknowledging to the God of the universe that you love me and you are with me even in this waiting season. And then Solomon makes this final promise, and he will direct your paths. 
He will direct your paths through and out of the waiting season. And when you thought he was abandoning, he was just preparing. And when you thought it was just about rejection, God may be moving in your life for some redirection. And when you thought that this whole season was about one no after another, it may be that the God of the universe who loves you right in this moment, maybe that he's preparing you for a better yes. And what you can take to the bank with no guarantee of what's going to happen on the other side, when you are willing to draw a stake in the ground and acknowledge him in the midst of your waiting, he will, without you even knowing it, will direct and make your path straight. And in the waiting, he will prepare you for what is on the other side of the waiting, and he will protect you from compounding the problems because you do not understand him. And all you need to do, but it is the most difficult thing to do, is not trust what you feel and your heart in this moment and not lean your weight because that's a lot of faith in your confidence cognitive reasoning, but instead acknowledge him. And when you acknowledge him, you can take it to the bank. He right now, as he feels so silent and so far away and so inactive, he is directing and he is making your path straight. And he has not forgotten you. And so I got to close. Can you maintain faith in God when there is no evidence of his activity in your life? And it only happens when you place your weight not in what you feel, but you acknowledge what is true. God is not uncertain. And God is not inactive. And this may be, and the cross echoes through the ages, it may be the epicenter of his greatest activity. And God is not angry. There is no correlation. If you are in Christ, God's righteous anger was handled at the cross one time for all time. And it is finished, never to be returned again. And you are not under condemnation and you are not under anger. The cross of Jesus Christ points through history to say God's anger was satisfied. And you, God, has not forgotten. You've forgotten God. But God has never forgotten you. And can I just encourage you, and, and I'm going to press you as your pastor in the coming days in ways that, that I never have before because we are about a growing gathering, not just numerically, but people taking steps in their faith journey. It's why you need community. It's why some of you who are still playing a sociocultural game sitting in a pew need to go and get into next steps, and you need to take a next step, and you need to figure out what the church, the gathering is about, and you need to step into what God wants you to do and the part he has for you to play, and you need to find community so that people can remind you in those seasons so that you are not on your own and that you need people in those seasons so they can remind you of things like this, that there is peace, there is purpose, and there is hope that's available and you can't experience peace again. And you need people in your life and you need relationships that God proactively drops in your way to let you know that you can, God can produce something good in this and there is not all that you see. And you need people to remind you that there is a purpose and there is a plan even when you don't see it. And today, I haven't fixed anything for you and I don't have any ability to do that. And that's not emotionally satisfying. You're not going to walk out and go, okay. It, it doesn't change the season that you're in while you are awaiting. But here's what it does let you know. It, it lets you know that you are not unique and that God has done this from the very beginning. 
and he does have a purpose in it. And if you are right now in a place where there is deafening silence and you feel so alone and God feels so far away, I just want to tell you this. There is nothing wrong with you. Welcome to the uncomfortable journey of following Jesus. And last thing, if you're not getting an answer right now to the where's God at, here's our hope. And I just constantly want to declare this over us. If you're not getting an answer to where is God at, you just need to know, even if you don't get it right now in this moment, one day the where is God question is going to be answered with a thunderous return. And he is going to right every wrong. And he is going to undo every injustice. And listen to me. And he is going to fulfill every single promise to his kids. And so can you maintain faith when there is no evidence of God's activity in your life? Would you guys pray with me all over the house? And if you're listening right now, if you're watching me right now, I want to invite you into the same invitation wherever you are. Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace. And Lord, I thank you that if nothing else, we can have the context this morning for our pain and our waiting and to know that we are not different and we are not unique. And as uncomfortable as it is, it has been your way from the beginning. And so right now, give us strength, give us your sustaining, empowering grace, knowing that we cannot do it on our own, to not trust our feelings, not place our faith in our cognitive ability to understand, but that right now as we walk out of here in all of our ways and decisions in this season of waiting, we would just acknowledge you. And for some of us, it needs to be out loud today. It needs to be strong. It needs to be a moment that we're going to come back to and remember. We need to write it down. We need to journal it. We need to post it. But despite the fact that we don't feel it, it is true, and we're going to acknowledge you, and we are going to place our weight and trust instead in the fact that you are directing our paths. You will make our paths straight, that you do love us, that you are with us, and that you are present. I thank you for the story of John the Baptist. I thank you for the hope that it gives us to thousand years later. I thank you that we are not alone. And so God, do whatever you want to do in our individual hearts, wherever we are at and wherever we are listening, and we give you all of the praise for even now what you are beginning to do in us. In Jesus' incredible name, amen.